Welcome to another edition of the Membership World podcast. My name is Gordon Glenister and I'm the founder of Membership World. This edition is sponsored by our friends at RD Mobile, the complete membership events engagement platform. Now, in this series, I'll be interviewing CEOs from the membership sector, and they'll be bringing insights and personal stories of their challenges and successes with loads of takeaways. I'll also be talking to thought leaders and others able to support our community. But before we get started, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast just to make sure that you don't miss a future episode. In today's episode, I'm talking with the CEO of the Institute of Quarrying, James Thorne, and Sarah Fry, who's the Head of Membership and Marketing. And we're talking about membership apps as an engagement tool. Uh, engaging members is the constant challenge for membership bodies, so I was really interested to hear what James and Sarah had to say. So a warm welcome to James and Sarah to the show. Perhaps if we start by just giving us a bit of a background as, as to the Institute of Quarry and what you're about, your sort of membership profile, that would be really good. The Institute has been around for quite a while, actually. We've been around since 1917, and it came about with three people working in the quarrying sector who saw the rate of injuries and, and fatalities within the sector and, and wanted to make an improvement. So we've very much been grounded in as an organisation in, in trying to improve the sector ever since. So the ethos of, of the Institute is very much to advance the science and practice of quarrying for the industry and society at large. We're a relatively small sector, if you like, in one sense, compared to many of the other sort of professional membership bodies out there. So we have a, a membership in the UK of around 3,000 to 3,500, and globally at the moment, around about six to 6,500. It's focused purely on the quarrying sector and mineral extractives, and very much our core membership is those people who are working in those sort of supervisory management roles although over the years that's widened out to people in operation roles and more senior roles and, and some of the related technical roles that sit within the sector itself. The core purpose of our members is to make sure that they have the competence to work within the sector. The sector itself is governed specifically by, by its own regulations particularly in health and safety so the quarry regulations 1999 which uh, particularly specify a level of competence for the sector and being able to demonstrate that competence through training, skills, experience, as you might expect. And that's really where our core aims and objectives as an organisation sit is, is ensuring and supporting members to develop their skills and knowledge and also share their experiences in terms of best practice to develop better ways of doing things, improving health and safety performance and also improving efficiency. Like many, I guess, traditional sectors, we uh, have a, a demographic that's not uncommon in the sense that it's predominantly male, white, age group around about the mid-50s. Again, very sort of in line with the engineering construction sectors, which in itself creates some challenges. But also within that, there's a huge amount of experience and knowledge that helps move the industry forward. So I think really it's uh, our job is, is to connect those members together and, and encourage new people coming into the sector as we move forward. Sarah, I mean, what are some of the challenges that you faced over the last 12 months? Because obviously lots of trade associations have gone through quite a, quite a significant change. The last 12 months has been a massive ride for everybody, hasn't it, really? I guess one of the areas that we were maybe slightly fortunate in, in that the construction industry was one of the last areas to go into full national lockdown. So I guess we had that benefit of maybe 
a couple of weeks, literally over and above maybe other sectors in the industry that were shut down overnight, where we could prepare and get ready to continue to uh, make sure that our members could receive communications from us, you know, if they were going to be furloughed and all of that sort of thing. So we had that element of being able to quickly pulled together the assets that we had available and made sure that we could get those out to members and that members were aware that that level of support and service was still there for them um, before going into the full national lockdown situation. I guess that was probably our biggest challenge to deal with really is how are you going to continue to get messages out to people when you know your primary method of communicating with them is email, which is often a work-linked email address which they may or may not have access to because, you know, we're not entirely sure what devices people have in their hands to be able to access their emails. So that was our biggest challenge to get out. And I guess what we noticed over the initial lockdown period was that, yes, we had to act quickly through email and make sure people were aware of the other channels that they were able to communicate with us in, primarily our social media channels. So we did see a spike in people engaging with posts, particularly on LinkedIn. And we took a slightly different approach in that period as well in that, Yes, we wanted to make sure that there was reassurance there for people that we were there, that we were available, we were contactable. But equally, at the same time, we were trying to not make light of the situation, but maybe be aware that maybe some people might be struggling with the pressures of lockdown and what was going on and and the fear and the anxiety levels that those people might be facing. So we tried to inject a little bit of levity in what we were doing. So we introduced things like we had some trivia type activities that we could use to engage people and maybe take their, just their minds off what was going on in the wider world for a little while. We had anecdotal feedback from members at the time that they really appreciated us taking that kind of approach, really. James, you were talking about the age group being in their 50s plus as a, as a broad brush. And I'm assuming quite a lot of them are not as tech savvy or not as social media savvy maybe i'm probably doing some of them a disservice but as as more younger folks so um as an organization being able to to pivot in some way is was was in itself a bit of a a challenge i guess Yes, I think so. I mean, as you say, there are people within that demographic who perhaps aren't so comfortable and familiar with technology. But to be fair, I think there's a couple of factors that played into our favour. I think we've all learned across all sectors in the last 15 months to adapt to technology fairly quickly. Mediums of Zooms like this and communication, we've all become Teams experts within two or three weeks. So I think there's a, a level of adaptability there. I think the other thing that played into our favour is that, as Sarah says, we're quite well placed in the sense of our offering to members anyway. So even prior to COVID, we'd started to deliver quite a lot of our services online through the formats of webinars and other activities like that. And that was more about the driver of the change in the working patterns of people, if you like. So recognising that people are working longer hours just generally. The dynamic of how people's working lives and home lives has changed means that the traditional model of having branch regional events started to change. So we'd started to introduce some of those mechanisms within our membership. So they were kind of used to some of those tools being available and some of those services being available. So I think the transition for us was probably a little bit easier than it possibly was for others. But certainly, yes, absolutely, as Sarah mentioned, I think invariably when you get into a situation like this, actually reaching the right people with the information in the right channels is always a challenge. And we know that from other membership bodies and the feedback that we've had that we're no different in that sense. So it is a real and was a real challenge. There is more that we can do. And I think that we can all learn from the last 15 months, hopefully that we never have to go through this again. But in terms of just general principles that we can take away about engaging with people more effectively. So I think, uh, yeah, there is there's definitely lessons to be learned. 
Yeah, no, indeed. Um, obviously, we're, we're keen to hear about the fact that you implemented this new app. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more, Sarah, about the process that you went through and what were your objectives? Adoption is obviously key. We also recognise that with the pandemic that was looming, we had a very small window to be able to get the message out to members that the app was available. We had originally planned on the app being launched in the June of last year to coincide with a, a major trade exhibition that was taking place. With the way that the pandemic was unfolding, we recognised that that trade show unfortunately wouldn't have been taking place and all of our plans were going out of the window. We had a very small opportunity where we could hit members with the news that we could rush the, the app through in ahead of that release schedule and just get the information out to them that they needed. So that was the decision that we took, really. So we brought the launch date forward by about six weeks in the end, just to make sure that we could get the information out to as many members as possible, that the app was available, download it, you know, make sure that you can keep in touch with us and also get access to all of the CPD-led resources that were available to them that perhaps now they might have time to catch up and refresh on if they felt so inclined. So that was the approach that we took with trying to get the initial message out. And since then, it's been an ongoing drip feeding of information to members to say, this is a valuable membership tool for you. This will be how you engage and how you get your content and access to valuable resources on an ongoing basis. So it's been an ongoing message. For us, the app wasn't just a sort of short-term gimmick to get people through the pandemic. It's actually part of our long-term strategy in terms of building member value for the long term. So therefore, all of our resources and all of our efforts now are focused on developing and integrating that app deeper and better within the organization. Our hope was that we would get 15% of our members downloading and using the app by the end of this year. And we're literally, we're within about 20 people or so of hitting that target. So we're quite pleased with how that's gone so far. And we've had some amazing testimonials back from members who adopted the app really early and could see the power and the benefit of it. And they've supported ongoing communications with members providing those testimonials and that feedback back to the wider membership group about why you should have the app installed and, and what a great value is for them as individuals. I think they were the key things that we were trying to do from a comms point of view around the challenges of adoption. What have we found? Possibly channel fatigue is how I would describe it. We all are dealing with so many different communication channels that we're trying to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. This feels like oh God, it's another thing I've got to engage with. It's another thing I've got to do. So we've got to find a way of getting past that perception potentially. And we've also got to encourage people that this is not the same app as the previous app that we'd had, which was just a, a single functional app to record CPD. This does that, but it does more and brings a, a greater benefit to people. So we've got to get better at communicating that message as well. Have you got an app user group at all? It's probably a good idea to formalise something and, and maybe that's something we should be looking at to do next. But up until now, we've kept it at a relatively ad hoc group. We have a small group of people that we know are engaged and active with what we're doing. They understand what we're trying to do with the app. They will be our first responders, if you like. So that tends to be the group that we rely on for most of our feedback uh, and direction for the members. 
then we have more formal governance structures like other organisations. So we have council, we have board of trustees, so we can discuss ideas with those groups of members as well, as well as with the informal arrangements through our, our membership group. We encourage engagement for members in all different platforms in all different areas. So I'll take the feedback wherever it comes from, quite frankly. <laughs> so. Well, I just wondered, you know, um, because you're right, there's so many different channels. And I'm just wondering if there were notifications. I mean, we all tend to react quickly to a whatsapp message don't we to an instant message uh, more so than we did than we would an email so it almost creates a heightened level of status so i just wondered because it was coming from the app and they're getting notifications whether or not um they're responding and engaging more than they would through through emails because i know that one of the biggest difficulties that membership bodies have is is just email you know you can have open rates but the call to actions is so poor and i'd love to know what that sort of difference between app and even though you've got less people adopting it than you might have in your email database i'd love to know how the engagement level compares with email versus an app yeah that would be a great question to answer wouldn't it really and you've just given me thoughts <laughs> <laughs> to go back and look at different ways of looking at the, the information and the, the analysis in the background. The short answer is we don't really have a way of measuring the engagement levels on the notifications through the app at this moment in time. So really the way we've used that functionality is to draw people's attention to new content that's available, that sort of thing. So it would be great to have a comparable to the open rates and the click-through rates that we get on email, which are generally pretty good for us, to be fair. But at this moment in time, we don't have that direct comparison, but that's something that maybe we can work on for the future. This podcast is sponsored by RD Mobile, providing events and member engagement solutions used by organizations worldwide. RD Mobile can help your organization deliver value at your next virtual or in-person event and throughout the year. Visit us at rdmobile.com to learn more. James, what's your perspective on the app moving forward? I think as we started the conversation, one of the points is that it's still very early in its evolution. I've been in membership bodies for quite a while now. I suppose one of the nervousnesses I had at the start of this is, I think for those of us who have been in the sector, uh, go back a few years, apps with a new great hope of things and, and, and invariably cost quite a lot of money and perhaps didn't ever deliver what organisations expected. So I think we came into this with our eyes open and I think particularly to the point you just talked about, that if you separate out where we were last year, it was very much, there are significant reasons why we wanted to get it out early on in the pandemic as a, as a communication tool. And that's probably a bit pushing information out rather than looking for information back. So the way that we operate as an organisation within the sector is collaborative. So part of the app's purpose was to drive out those messages from key partners, be it the HSE or, or other charitable organisations that are delivering advice and guidance around COVID or mental health, those kinds of areas, because that, and that's one of the things that we don't do. We don't sort of stray into areas that aren't our expertise. So it was really about pulling together that information and making it available to people. I think very much the next evolution as we build this over the next two or three years is to start to engage communities and build communities with the app. And I think very much in my mind, that's how we see this both in the UK and internationally is utilising the app to build a community that can engage with the information we're providing, but 
give us that feedback and tell us what are the areas that we need to work on to bring more to. Um, and again, I think, you know, probably harking back again, five or 10 years ago, the culture was perhaps slightly different around apps as well. Whereas I think now people are more comfortable with them. You know, the people coming into the sector, the younger people that are joining our sector and our profession are used to engaging with information in this style and this format, and it's more expected. So it's actually, I think, more intuitive for them to use. So I think we've got to be really mindful about that. But I think it is that point about it. It does become a proactive tool that isn't just sat on the side, but we have to constantly pump prime it to start with. But we need to make sure that we do have that critical mass so that it becomes a community engagement tool. I mean, again, I go back probably 10 years ago in other organisations that I'm involved in, we turned off our own discussion forums as things like LinkedIn came in because people intuitively naturally went to those as their discussion forums. And actually you were investing in discussion platforms for members that weren't being used because there weren't enough people on them. And so I think one of the areas for us is to make sure that getting that critical mass in and around this is absolutely key to making it successful. And I think that's the strategy for the next two or three years is to exactly understand that call to action, the nudge notifications, what kind of responses do we get to those? Where are the areas that are key for us that we get the most reaction from? What are the things that make sense to our members as individuals so that they can engage with that tool? Um, and we're very fortunate, I think, in a sense that a lot of our members are keen on this kind of thing and are interested in the sector as a whole. And I guess the other part for us with it is that the sector, like many others, is facing a huge number of challenges, but opportunities. You think about uh, sustainability, the Build Back Better agenda, decarbonisation, the transition to a digital workplace. You know, we've got autonomous vehicles, AI coming into the sector. And again, that may not be coming on tap for 10, 15, 20 years, but the beginnings of these things are coming through. Uh, again, very naturally, they align themselves to these kind of tools to be able to engage with people in, in a way that's more intuitive. And again, comes back to what's the work-life balance look like now, post-COVID. The industry is very much a primary extractive industry and materials management recycling industry these days, if you look at it from that point of view. So you will always have people on site, always have people in locations. But again, that's part of the benefit of this, being able to access it when and where you want to. So I think from my point of view, it becomes our primary tool to engage with people. But it's something that we have to engage with ourselves and ensure that it's at the heart of how we do that communication strategy. Because I was in a meeting only last week with members and volunteers we yet again had the conversation that I've probably had a hundred times, a thousand times over the last 13, 14, 15 years within membership bodies is saying, oh, well, I don't look at the emails that you send through because you send me too many. Well, we put it in an email. Well, I didn't see it. You didn't send me the email. Well, no, we did send you the email, but you know, we're in that constant challenge around emails and we're all in that space, aren't we? So, Well, the problem with emails, I guess, uh, James, is that you know, an email can come in at a disruptive moment, whereas a notification is, is, is there and you can deal with it as you wish. Um, I'll tell you what I was going to ask you guys. It's some really interesting points that James has made there. Um, whether or not you have or would consider exclusive content in the app. In other words, members can only resource content in the app and whether that's about um, diversity or something else the reason I mention it is because when I used to run the the British Promotional Merchandise Association um, it happened to be a LinkedIn group but one of the things that I put in the LinkedIn group was uh, spammers and fraud so anything that was affecting the industry that was related to fraud alerts or anything like that would only go 
in the LinkedIn group and that had the highest level of engagement because people would see and that what was going on within that and that was not anywhere else it was only in that part of the group so I just wondered if that has been part or could be part of your strategy moving forward. We have gone down that road maybe not to that extreme the majority of the content in the app that's there is structured around our skills wheel, which is basically a tool that we use to explain to members all the different areas that they need to develop expertise in to be a a fully rounded professional within the industry. Most of that content is available somewhere now. And this comes back to the original point about our content was not necessarily all being curated in a central place. So that content is all available, but you might have to go to our website or you might have to go to YouTube or you might have to go to an email that you'd received with a link to a document in it. So what we did with the app was curated all of that content, put it in a filing system and said, there it all is. He can access it to your heart's content. Outside of that, Touching on what James was saying earlier about how we use the app to distribute content from trusted partners, we've got specialist areas and we put together a section in the app on dealing with the pandemic. So that curated all of the content that was available through the HSE and, and other organisations about how to you know, manage the coronavirus within your own workplaces. And we put that together in a really easy reference guide that was only available through the portal. The other area that we've done that is mental health. And again, we've curated content from a range of organisations, whether it's Mates in Mind, the HSE, some of the leading mental health charities that are operating in the UK. And we've put all of that together in a curated place in the app. And actually, those two sections, the pandemic and mental health awareness, generally, some of those content areas are some of our most regularly accessed bits of content within the app to date. So, We haven't yet sold it as exclusive content that you can only get on the app, but, you know, we do put those valuable content areas together for members to enjoy. And I think there's a point with that and going back to your point around nudge notifications, it's something that we need to learn, I think, as we go through the next phase of this is learn the lessons of emails. We have, as we've discussed, is, is the fact that how do we use the nudge notifications to their maximum effect? You know, again, and what is the optimum number of nudge notifications? Is there a point where people start to ignore those? Because my own experience, I have a number of apps where I've probably got 10 outstanding notifications that I haven't looked at because I generally am doing the same as I do with a email filter is, is mentally filtering it. saying, well, I broadly know now what sort of level those notifications are coming in at. Therefore, I probably won't look at them. So I think there is further thinking and and development for us to do around how we apply some of those rules as as we take this forward in the next year. And actually understanding the behaviour of, I mean, maybe it's it's worthy of doing a survey of the people and what um, and, and how they are acting, how they're reacting to the app, at what time, when, what type of content, because in a way, all of this, all of this research will really help you build it moving forward. And, and you'll probably find that there's some, some great insights from the members that are using it and uh, haven't necessarily been asked a particular question, because um, why do they interact with another type of app? or another type of app because, whatever that because is, because what we're all trying to do here is get the attributes of behaviour, aren't we? Yeah, and I think that's such a critical point because, again, you will know, Gordon, as we do, that the trouble is quite often with the membership organisations, 
engaged members will engage with everything that you do. But that percentage can be a relatively small percentage. Our ambitions and aspirations is always to engage with all of our members. But in truth and reality, for a lot of membership organisations, that isn't the case. And it tends to be the same voices that you hear back. There's nothing wrong with that. We service the needs of those people and it's great that they're engaged. But I think one of the acid tests here is exactly that business intelligence and data that we get back through this. Are we engaging with a slightly different demographic of our members through this than we have done previously? Is this going to be something that breaks through to engage with those sectors? Or is it something that just reinforces our existing engaged members? That's not a criticism, but I think as we build capacity in this and we build more numbers within it, then I think the reliability and validity of the data that we get back will help steer us as we move it forward and evolve the tool over the next few years. And again, I think from my point of view, the other part with this is we're working particularly as well with some sector bodies internationally to start to share some of the concepts around what we're doing and finding ways that perhaps we can engage them. Because again, from our point of view, the tool isn't just about supporting existing members, but growing our membership base. Whilst we've got an international footprint of members, when you look at the statistics for the number of people working within the mineral extractive sector globally, it's way, way beyond the membership base that we have at the moment. And there are many reasons for that. But through this process, engaging with those that don't really understand the Institute, what it stands for, and ways to engage with it, this is possibly a tool to do that. And again, getting data from that community so that we can understand what their needs are. Are they the same as our own members, existing members? Is there something slightly different we need to look at? What are the kind of things that we can put in there that will be attractive to those to help support our development and growth in that international arena because I think that's critically important for us you know and again was really one of the underpinning factors in taking the project forward is that we need to utilize it in that space. Final words from you any sort of um, real big I mean we've discussed some of them here but perhaps we can finish with a few takeaways that perhaps could help some of our listeners that perhaps are embarking on an, an app. For me I think it was the process that we went to in thinking about why we wanted the app And it was there to address some of the issues that we were facing, both from a technical perspective and also from a communications perspective. So thought about what the app was there to do, what role it would play and how it would support the organisation going forward, improving our processes to members, improving the deliverability of services to members and really thought that through. So it wasn't just about, oh, we need an app as a bit of a a knee-jerk, gimmicky reaction to trying to solve some other issue that an organisation might be finding. It was grounded in what is it that we want this app to do, what problems will it solve, and how will it help us build the organisation for the future? I think I'd echo very much what Sarah said. I think the attraction often for these things is to chase the technology rather than what is the outcome you're looking to achieve. And I think that very much as Sarah articulated, it's a means to an end for us. It's about improving services, improving engagement and growing. And we came at it from that angle rather than what's the shiniest piece of technology. And I think the other point for me is the pragmatism that I would suggest to any organisation that we are a relatively small organisation. The platform we use is proportionate and works for us and it allows us some scalability. There are a number of different ways you can achieve these things, but I think there is usually a solution, I think, given modern technology for all organisations and it's worth looking at as long as you have got those clear outcomes in your mind before you start the process. James and Sarah, it's a pleasure talking to you today and thanks so much for uh, spending this time on the Membership World podcast. That's it for another edition of the Membership World podcast. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram or Facebook. 
And if you do want to ask me any questions about particular issues, do let me know. Once again, a reminder to hit subscribe. And if you do feel like it, please do give us a nice review as it does make a huge difference. If you want to take part in any of the Membership World programs I run or want to receive any great content, please register on the Membership World website. It's free to anyone running membership bodies or communities. You can also download a copy of the new Social CEO Report, which is on the home page. So thanks again to our sponsor, RD Mobile, and my producer, Neil Whiteside from Freedom One. And until next time, from me, Gordon Glenister, it's bye for now.